Mark chapter 12. Mark is over in the New Testament part of your Bible, the second book you run into there in the New Testament with those four Gospels that tell the story of Jesus' life and teaching. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 12 at the very end of that chapter this morning. If you got a copy of the bulletin as you came in, there's some notes that you can look at on the back side of that bulletin if that's helpful and of interest to you. I've heard from several of you in recent days about how you just have a renewed passion for studying God's Word, how God's doing this work in your heart, your desire that you have to study Scripture. And right alongside, I had a conversation with a friend about Jesus. That's the most exciting thing that that a pastor can hear is that I'm excited about studying God's Word and I'm telling other people about this. As we're looking at this passage this morning, we're going to follow that process of observation, interpretation, application. In other words, as you're learning to study scripture on your own, you look at it and say, this is the, these are the important parts, these are the things that really stand out, here's what that means, here's what we're trying to do with that. And so as, even as we go through this time this morning, this is a part of helping all of us learn to have a passion for God's word and learn how do we study God's word. What do I do when I open the Bible up during the week and I'm not sure? Well, you look at it, what stands out, what's the meaning of it, and then what do we do with this? And so we're going to kind of walk through that process this morning. But I want to look here at Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 41. We're going to read these verses, and then I want to pray over uh, this time, and then we're going to get into the, the meaning of them. But let's look at Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 41. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Father, we thank you for the gift of gathering together for worship. Father, thank you for Emmaus. Father, I love these people, and we feel the weight of your word. We feel the weight of what it is that you're calling us to But God, we know because of that last song that the resurrected Christ is the one who is resurrecting us, who gives us victory, who gives us life, that we don't live under that burden of guilt and shame and condemnation, but God, we have victory and we have hope and we have freedom because of Christ. Father, I pray that for those who are here this morning under great emotional pain and great physical pain, who maybe feel spiritually dry or oppressed, God, that they would know what it is that you have given all so that we would be set free. And God, in response, we want to give our all to you. And we do that this morning, and we do that the moment we leave this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As many of you know, uh, my family lived for several years in New Orleans. We love that city, we love those people, I know people have bad New Orleans experiences, and that's understandable, but we had a great New Orleans experience, and we absolutely love that place. And last night or this morning, you may have seen on the news the really difficult story about the car that drove into one of the parades that's happening with with Mardi Gras 
doesn't look like anyone died as a result of that, but just a really scary situation. Uh, when we were there, you have to understand a little bit about the way Mardi Gras works and the way that New Orleans works. People hear that you go to Mardi Gras parades and they think all of the worst possible options, but if you go to the right parades at the right time and the right places, our family loved it, and our kids were so depressed when they went to their first parade in Oklahoma after moving back here. <laughs> That's just not a parade. Like, we've seen a parade. This is not a, par- not a parade. But in New Orleans, you always knew when it was Mardi Gras time because the king cakes were available. Has anybody eaten a king cake and found the little plastic baby in there? Yeah, so uh, you had the king cakes that were available, and it was this time of the parades, and it was leading up to to Fat Tuesday, which comes up actually this Tuesday, but you really knew you lived in an area like New Orleans because the day after Fat Tuesday, the day after Mardi Gras, is Ash Wednesday. And depending on your religious background or the parts of the country that you've lived in, you know on Ash Wednesday, you see the imposition of the ashes on the forehead as the time of Lent, which is the 40 days leading up to Easter begins. This Wednesday night here at Emmaus, we're going to gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper for Ash Wednesday as we begin this season of Lent. There are many different ways, and some of you, because of religious background and things that are really important to you, you go and have the imposition of the ashes on Ash Wednesday, but it's that time that starts the period leading up to Easter. That period of time is called Lent. And it leads up to Holy Week, which prepares us for Easter Sunday, and then As Jim mentioned earlier, we're planning things that will even follow after Easter. How do we live out our faith? Just really quickly, as as an aside, during Holy Week uh, this year, we're looking to have a Maundy Thursday opportunity during the day here at Emmaus. If you're interested in volunteering and helping to pull that off, we're going to have a quick meeting after the morning worship gathering, but we're, we're working to prepare our hearts for Holy Week, to prepare our hearts for Easter. But this idea of Lent, the 40 days from Ash Wednesday leading up to Easter may be new to you, uh, especially if you grew up in a Southern Baptist background like I did. But usually Lent is based around the idea of fasting, prayer, and giving, or sometimes the phrase almsgiving, giving to those who, who are in need, giving of your resources. And it's a way to prepare our hearts to understand the sacrifice that that Christ made for us. And so as we make the transition from the sermon series we were going through about music and worship, and we make the transition to starting Titus and leading up to Easter, this morning I want us to think about this idea of giving, worship through giving, and preparing our hearts for Lent. Now, If you're here as a guest or you're here with family and friends and church and Christianity is not really your thing, you may think, man, I have the worst luck ever. I showed up on the money Sunday. Like the preacher's going to talk about money. How would I show up on this Sunday? I hope as you see this Bible story take place that you'll see some new things about what the Bible says about money, what the Bible says about giving. Even if you grew up in church and this particular Bible story is familiar to you, I hope you see some new things this morning that maybe you haven't seen before. So go back to your Bible, go back to your phone that you might have open in front of you, and let's look at this story of what's going on here. Starting in verse 41, it says, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple. Now these boxes, many of them were shaped like trumpets. 
uh, and the money would be placed in there, and there were certain boxes that were certain purposes. So those of you who like to fill out the offering envelope and you mark the designated giving box and you write in what it's designated for, there were different receptacles, there were different areas in the, in the um, temple there that were for designated giving, but there were also these receptacles that were just free will offerings or, or more general giving. And so you had different options there. You know the problem that Jesus had with a lot of the religious leaders is they liked to throw their money in there so it was really loud when it hit the receptacle so that people knew they were giving a lot of money. They liked to be seen when they, when they give. This is the, the scene of what's going on. So Jesus sits down near the collection box and he watches as the crowds dropped in their money. Some translations will say people there instead of crowds. Mark loves the word crowd. If you're looking for a Bible research project to do or you're trying to get back into reading scripture and you're looking for something to really engage you, do a study in the book of Mark of the word crowd. Uh, you can go online and just search for all the instances of the word crowd in the book of Mark, but you see the crowd, they just kind of go from place to place. Often it's the crowd in the sense that whatever is popular at the time, one story the crowd is for Jesus, the next story the crowd is against Jesus, they just kind of go from place to place. But Mark loves the word crowd. This is not an accidental use of this word for him. He's saying something about what's about to happen in this story. So the crowds are dropping in their money, and it says many rich people put in large amounts. There's a word play that's going on there between the word many and the word large. This idea that many of these people who have a lot of money are putting in a lot of money to these receptacles. So he's setting up a contrast that he's about to make. Because in verse 42, it's not many rich people putting in large amounts, it's a poor widow. And this particular translation where it says a there, it emphasizes the idea of there was one. So there was many rich people, there were many rich people, and one poor widow. It's almost the sense that she's isolated, that she's getting lost in the crowd. There's a particular contrast here between all of the people over here and then this one person over here. Jesus really likes these contrasts between many and one because he'll tell stories about the one little sheep that runs away and he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. Jesus has a very particular concern for people who are marginalized, for people who are isolated, people who are pushed to the side. The crowd is associated with the many rich people. Jesus has his eye on the one poor widow. And so there's this very particular scene that you need to pick up in your mind to understand a little bit of what's going on here. It's not just that she's one, it's that she's poor. How did Jesus know that, that she was poor? Almost certainly it was reflected in her clothing. It was obvious she was by herself. She didn't have very much money, and so there's an there's a easy conclusion you draw that, that she's poor and that she's a widow at this point. You think back to the Old Testament, to 1 Kings chapter 17, and there's the widow who lives in a place called Zarephath, or Zarephath, um, who doesn't have very much money left. In fact, she just has a little bit of flour. And the prophet tells her to go and use that flour and to make bread and bring it. She says, this is all I have left. I have no more money. I have nothing else to offer other than this little bit of flour. That same picture 
is reflected here in Mark 12 with this widow. And there's a really interesting relationship here. Um, actually, let's see. Do we want to go to that right now? Yeah, let's do that right, right now. I want to show you this commentary from, from an ancient Jewish passage. Um, it's based on Leviticus chapter 1, verse 17. But this widow in the story, it says she has two small coins here in Mark 12. Those two small coins were enough to buy a small amount of flour. We have the story of the widow from 1 Kings 17, but there's also this old Jewish commentary that was out there. It says, once a woman brought a handful of fine flour, and the priest despised her, saying, see what she has to offer? What is there in this to eat? What is there in this to offer up? But it was shown to him in a dream, do not despise her. It is regarded as if she had sacrificed her own life. So it's quite likely that the people that Mark is writing to and the people that Jesus is associating with, they would have been familiar with this midrash, with this, this type of commentary from the Old Testament that tells the story of this widow. And so the people would have known they weren't supposed to despise someone who comes with just a little bit of flour or comes with just a little bit of money. But that's what's beginning to happen in this story is Jesus knows all the focus is on the rich people and no focus is on this poor widow. Look what happens in verse 43. So in verse 43, Jesus calls his disciples, which is phrasing that he would, Mark would use when Jesus was going to make a point. Uh, Jesus called his disciples and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. Now obviously something's going on there because even if your math isn't very good, you know that she has not given more money than all the other people putting in their money. So there's something that Jesus is doing here. What does it mean that she's given more? Well, he goes in in verse 44 and says, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, or, or some translations will say lacking, or in her poverty, in her poverty or in her lack, she has given everything she had to live on. So the contrast, the reason she's given more is she hasn't given more in total, but she's given more in ratio. She's given more in percentage. They had all this money and they gave some, and guess what they still have? A lot of money. She had very little and she gave it all even as if she's giving her own life. And that reflects that commentary that we saw earlier from Leviticus, this idea that when you give from your lack, when you give from your poverty, you're giving literally your whole life. You're giving all that you have to live on. So we see those parts of the story, but the interesting thing about this story is there's really two sides to it when we think about what is the meaning. Why is this story used here? What are we supposed to get out of it? There's, there's kind of two sides to it. The first is the danger of religious power, and the second is the power of sacrificial giving. Jesus' main purpose in giving this story seems to be not necessarily to focus on the widow, but to focus on the religious establishment, to focus on the people who had the power in the temple, because they're doing exactly what they're not supposed to be doing in this situation. Look back if you still have your phone open or, or your Bible open. Look back just before this passage in Mark 12, verse 38. 
So just before this story of, of the widow, in Mark 12, verse 38, Jesus also taught them, Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their profit and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. Now in the background of this passage is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, but also if you read what Jesus' brother writes in the book of James, so much of this story is reflected in what James deals with and where the people were giving privilege or places of honor to those who had wealth and they were pushing the poor people to the side. You get into uh, Titus and 1 Timothy that we're gonna start looking at in a couple of weeks and you see the way that care was not given to the widows who really needed the care, the money was kept for the good of others. One of the dangers, and a danger that Jesus is getting at here is these religious leaders, these people who had the power in the temple, they're doing exactly what he predicted would happen. They are devouring the houses of widows. They are taking this widow's money and they're using it for their own good. Because remember, there were different receptacles, there were different offering plates that you could use in the temple. One of those, and almost certainly the one that the widow used, was that free will general offering. Do you know where most of that money went? It went toward the temple. And so she is giving her last money to be put toward the temple for these religious leaders who are accruing, who are gaining more power for themselves, more money for themselves. So the first danger of religious power is that religious power devours the needy and the marginalized. Religious power, if we allow it to accrue for our own purposes, we gain it and hold it for ourselves, it will devour and destroy those who most need the help, those who most need our care. And what Jesus is doing here is he's tapping into a line of thought that runs all throughout the Old Testament. You don't have to read very far in Exodus or Deuteronomy or any of the prophets to find God siding with the widows and siding with the orphans. Just one, one option is Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah 10, starting in verse 1, it says, What sorrow awaits the unjust judges and those who issue unfair laws? They deprive the poor of justice and deny the rights of the needy among my people. They prey on widows and take advantage of orphans. When these prophets are speaking against the people who have broken God's covenant, they say one of the ways you've done that is you have hurt and you've taken away justice, you've taken away care from those who need it most. And so what we're always looking at in our own hearts is, is that true of me? Or is that true of us? Do we focus on what we can gain, what we can hold on to, what we can benefit from, or is it how can we care for those who are in need? How can we care for those who are most marginalized? You need to uh, rile up or boil somebody's blood. If you come after me, that's okay. You know, I can, I can handle that. But you go after my grandma, or you try to take my grandma's money, or you try to take advantage of her, you know what it's like, how you feel inside when an older person has been taken advantage of, 
or when an orphan is pushed to the side and they're hurt because of a situation. It's one thing to come after me. You know, that's fine. We, we can handle that. But you go after an older lady, we get angry. This righteous anger bubbles up inside of us because we know that that's not right, that that doesn't match who God has created us to be. And one of the reasons Jesus puts forward this story about the widow is because he's so angry at the religious establishment who want their own power but push aside those who are needy and those who are marginalized. Which leads to the second thing, religious power builds up those who already have. The money is going to the temple. These people already have a lot of money. They already have a lot of power, and they're taking from those who don't have very much, and they're gaining from it. Um, Jesus is not Robin Hood here, <laughs> so don't get the wrong idea, but there's a little bit of that type of story going on in the background of why would you take from the poor to make the rich even richer? Is, is that how God's economy is supposed to operate? No, it's not. And so Jesus is confronting the religious establishment. He's confronting the temple power. The third thing is that religious power, and don't miss this in this whole story, religious power invests in what will pass away. This money that the widow gives, the very last money she has, she gives to the temple establishment so they can put toward a temple that will do what? That will be destroyed. Matthew chapter six, Jesus alludes to this very clearly. He's talking about it in a different, a different way, but Matthew six, starting in verse 19, Jesus says this idea that don't store up treasures for yourself on earth where moss eat and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store up your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. When Jesus first comes into Jerusalem before this story happens, if you want to look back around Mark chapter 11 as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the first thing he does is he goes into the temple and he begins to turn over the tables related to buying and selling. So he's confronting the temple power. And then immediately after he tells this story here in Mark 12, if you read Mark 13, Mark 13 is about the destruction of the temple. And so Jesus' frustration is partly related to the fact that this lady gives her last money and it's going to go toward building up a temple that he has already said was going to be destroyed. His body is the true temple, and he says, destroy my body and in three days I'll raise it back up. But you're investing in something that's not going to last. Religious power, the reason people clamor for money, the reason you see the TV preachers reaching out for more and more and more and you need to give more and more and more is because too often they're building into things that aren't really going to last. God's kingdom will last. God's word will stand forever. People who turn to him and find salvation will experience eternal life. But if we're not careful, we end up accruing religious power, which just invests in something that one day is going to pass away so quickly. So what do we do? We guard our hearts against power and oppression. Am I more interested, and let me just ask the question as a pastor, just so it's really personal. Am I more interested in building up an institution in building up religious power, in building up prestige, or are we most interested in being who God has called us to be, to think about others before we think about ourselves? And that's a great question in theory, but it is, it's really hard when you start to think about it in, in practice. Number two, look out for and care for the marginalized and hurting. 
If you wonder what we, we mean here, just go to James chapter two and just read that, those first few verses of James chapter two again. If we're not careful, our eyes are focused, our attention is focused on those who can provide the most, who have the most to give, who seem most popular, who seem most wealthy. And Jesus just tells us over and over again, and, and students at school, I know this is so hard to live out when you're, when you're teenagers, but focus on those who are in need. Focus on those who are marginalized. Focus on those who need someone to speak love and hope in, into their lives. We're so drawn to popularity, so drawn to power, and yet Jesus just presses against that over and over and over again. And then the third thing, focus on the eternal, not the temporary. Part of the problem here with the religious power is they're accruing something that's not going to last. It's going to be destroyed. So one of Jesus' main purposes in this story is he is speaking against, he's giving a story that goes against this idea of religious power. But we also need to learn from the widow here. And we also need to learn from the way that in some sense, to use a modern use of this term, she is trolling the religious power at this point. She knows where her money is going to go. She's not dumb. She knows that this is all she has left. She knows where it's going to go, but her act of giving is a sign of sacrificial giving that's designed to prepare the people for the death of Christ and designed to prepare the people for the life that Jesus' disciples are called to live. So don't miss, even though this story is about the danger of religious power, don't miss what we learn from this widow's gift, the way that she is able to show what sacrificial giving really looks like. How do we live this out? I've kind of listed them A through F or A through G, A through F there on, on your notes. But number one, don't miss this. Trust in Jesus' sacrifice for you. Before we talk about sacrificial giving, before we talk about what I give, any of that language is confusing if we don't understand Jesus' sacrifice for us. Because this is not about giving in order to earn God's love. It's not about giving because you're supposed to give when the offering plate comes around. It's not about giving because you're trying to earn something. This is because of what God has done for us, because of Christ's sacrifice for us. Not long after this, in the book of Mark, Jesus tells another story about a woman who gives some things. If you turn over in your Bible or you scroll down on your phone to Mark chapter 14, there's another story there about the poor and about giving. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 3. And just as a, a really quick side note, if anyone ever talks to you about how the Bible is misogynistic or the Bible is anti-woman and it builds up men and it presses down women, just show them the end of Mark. Because at the end of Mark, the women are the ones who are leading the way. They're the ones who are showing this picture of the kingdom of God and these men who are accruing religious power to themselves, they're the ones who don't really get what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so you've got this lady that shows up in Mark chapter 14 it says, meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages, 
and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. And then it goes on, and Jesus replied, Leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Okay, Mark loves to do something. There goes my bulletin. Mark loves to do something called a Markin sandwich or a Mark sandwich. He'll deal with a story, he'll talk about something else, and then he'll tell another story on the backside to make sense of what happens in the middle. So here's how the Mark sandwich works out here. Chapter 12 ends with this story about a widow who gives all the money she has to give. And as she does it, she's speaking out, she's working against the temple establishment. Mark 13 is about the destruction of the temple how this is not going to last. Then Jesus comes right back around at the end of this story, and Mark tells it in Mark 14, and he tells about this woman who prepares his body for burial. So Mark takes two women, end of Mark 12, beginning of Mark 14, and uses them to show that the temple as it stands as a physical building is not going to last. But instead, these two women show you what it really looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God, that you give everything you have to give because they are preparing for my death. They know what this is aiming for. They know that I have come to give myself for them. And when we understand Christ's sacrifice for us, then we're able to do the second point, which is then we're able to give ourselves fully to Jesus in worship and obedience. He has given himself fully to us, and so our response is we give ourselves fully to him. The best place I know to see this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, he died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So if I attempt to earn my way to God, if I attempt to earn his love, if I attempt to say, you know what, I'm gonna try harder and harder and harder to be a better person, but I don't understand that he's given himself for me, then all of my efforts are gonna fall short. You're gonna feel tired, you're gonna feel religiously, religiously shamed, you're gonna feel guilty, you're gonna always feel like I don't ever measure up. But when we understand that Jesus has given himself for us and we have his life, and then our response is that we would give ourselves to him, it changes everything. My prayer for you and my prayer for Emmaus and in my prayers this morning as I was texting back and forth with some other pastors and we were praying for one another, they said, how can we pray for Emmaus? And I said, pray that we would give ourselves fully to Jesus. Emphasis on the word fully. Any attempt to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ without understanding that he's given himself fully for us and our response is that we give ourselves fully for him, anything else just becomes tiring religious observance. It just becomes accruing more effort, more power for ourselves. He gave himself for us, so we give ourselves for him. How can I tell if I'm really doing that? Well, here's where the giving part comes in. Here's where the money part comes in. 
One of the ways that Jesus says you can tell if you've done this is how are you using your finances? How are you dealing with your resources? Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Have I given myself fully to the Lord? Well, where are my treasures? Where am I investing myself? Where am I putting my resources? Am I doing it in a way that reflects I've given myself fully to the Lord? This is the idea, and I put a couple of comments on your notes that I want to make sure I explain carefully so you don't go away with the wrong idea. There's the idea in church of tithing, uh, that you give 10% of, of your income to the things of the Lord, to, to the local ministry. Uh, that's one of those worms that squirms out of the, what does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament can? And so there's a big discussion about tithing and, and a lot of things that be, can be explored. But what I want us to be careful of is a dangerous form of tithing. It's the form that says, okay, I'll give 10% of my money to the Lord, but I'm going to do whatever else I want with that other 90%. That is not the heart of the New Testament. It is a dangerous mentality if you say, I'll make sure God gets his, but I'm going to sure hold on to mine and do whatever I want to with it. That's not giving yourself fully to the Lord, and that's where some of this danger can come into, because then it's reflected in an approach to worship that says, you know what, I'll give God Sunday morning, I don't mind that, I can handle that, but I'm going to do whatever else I want the rest of the week. That's dangerous because then we haven't given ourselves fully to the Lord. Biblical giving says all of this is God's anyway. I'm going to give it all to him, and I'm going to invest a portion of that consistently in local church ministry. Every moment I have in the week is from God. It's all his anyway. Every breath I take is a gift from him. So I'm going to give all of it for him, and then I'm going to invest a portion of it in consistently gathering together with other believers as part of the church. Everything we have is from him. Everything we have is for him. And when we talk about tithing, when we talk about Sunday morning worship, that's investing a portion of that in a particular way, but it's recognizing all of this is his anyway. Which leads to the next point. How do I go forward from this? Account for all your money and resources. Taking responsibility over the things, being a good steward, that's the word we're probably trying to get at, being a good steward of what God has given us. Do we understand what God has given us, and are we taking responsibility for that? Because we know that if we don't take responsibility for what God has given us, someone else will be glad to take control of your money. If you don't take control of your own calendar and your own schedule, somebody else will be glad to take control of your calendar and your schedule for you. Either we take responsibility for this and say, I want to be a good steward of my time and money, or someone else will do that for you. When we talk about budgeting, Budgeting is saying, I just want to be accountable for what God has given me. Do I know where this money is going? Or do you get to the end of the month and you think, where did all this go? I know I started the month with X and I have no idea where it went. Part of budgeting is just being accountable for what God has given us, is being able to make account for it. When we talk about developing a legacy or making plans for the future, there's a Bible study that actually starts tonight at 5 o'clock related to the idea of building a financial legacy and planning for retirement. This idea that if we don't make plans for the resources God has given us, the government will be more than happy to make those plans for you. 
Uh, we can either choose and say, I want to know where this money is going. I want to know what my legacy is building toward. Or if we don't do that, we have no idea what we'll end up investing our resources in, what we'll end up investing our lives in. So the first thing that we have to start with is just being able to give an account for what the Lord has given us. Then it leads to the next thing. Begin giving now, consistently and joyfully. One of the things you see in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament where it talks about giving, is it talks about giving from your first fruits. What that means is very simply, if you say, you know what, I know that's important that I give to the things of the Lord, and I know I need to get control of my finances. But if we wait until the end of the month to find out what's left over and then say I'll give to the Lord, it's not going to happen. God calls us to give out of our lack, not out of our leftover. He calls us to give as a first fruit, not as a leftover. He calls us to say, I'm going to make plans, I'm going to be consistent, and I'm going to be joyful in doing this. The older generation that my generation needs to learn from is so many people are good at giving out a duty. I know I'm supposed to do this, and so I'm going to give to the Lord. My generation, we have to delight in it. We have to be motivated to do it. We have to say, I need to see a reason to do this. We need to learn from an older generation about, no, we, we have to make plans for this. We have to be consistent in this, but we do it from a sense of, of joy. We do it from a sense of everything that we have is from the Lord. And when we begin to give now and say, I'm gonna give even though I don't have enough, that's where that moment of faith starts to come in. I'm gonna give even though I don't have enough, but I'm gonna be consistent in this. Then we build up from there to giving sacrificially, to say, I'm gonna start here, but I really want to take another step in my giving because I wanna invest in the things of the Lord. I wanna invest in the kingdom of God. And then you take another step and you begin to build into your finances the opportunity to just give spontaneously. So many times opportunities for giving come along and we haven't done the work on the front end so that when it comes an opportunity to give extra, to give spontaneously, there's nothing there available to give. In families, when you have these conversations about finances, you have the wisdom side and the faith side. So you have the person in the family that wants to budget and needs to know where every penny goes, and then you have the other person in the family that says, come on, let's just trust the Lord, let's just live by faith here, he's gonna provide everything we need to have. One of the ways that you can work some flexibility in there is the wisdom budget person says, okay, I, I know that's important. So they create a line in the budget that's called faith giving or spontaneous giving. And then the faith person in the family knows that during the month when the Lord brings up opportunities to be able to give above and beyond, there's money there that they've set aside and they say, yeah, I know I can give. I'm gonna give this. I'm gonna give it out of faith knowing the Lord's going to use this. One of the things I want us to be careful of as a church family is how and how often we come to you about special offerings. I want you to know that you can make decisions in your family that you can make budgets, that you can make plans, that you can live by faith, and that we're not coming to you every week with a new thing to give to. But we say, you know what, we're gonna set up our budget, we're gonna set up our giving in such a way that we make the most impact for the kingdom of God, and then when those extra opportunities come, we've made plans, we've set up a system that's gonna allow that to happen, and so you're able to give in response to the Lord. But none of that matters if we haven't given ourselves fully to the Lord. 
He has given himself for us, and so in response to that, we surrender all to him. Students, start now with your money. I know you don't have very much, but start now. Start now with your time. You don't think you have very much, but you have a ton of it. You just don't know it yet. Start now saying, I'm going to invest what I have. I'm gonna invest it, not in something that's not gonna last, but I'm gonna invest it in the name of Jesus Christ so that God's kingdom will advance and so that we can be a part of all that he wants to do in and through us. I'm gonna pray for us, and after I pray, we're gonna sing a song that won't surprise you. It's the song, I Surrender All. If you grew up in church, you're gonna be familiar with this song. But we don't sing it in a manipulative, manipulative way. We've seen it wanting to respond to God's word. You may have a bunch of money, or you may have two pennies left in your pocket. But the question is, are we giving everything we have to the Lord? And then what's the next step you need to take in your life? If you're not giving right now to the things of the Lord, say, I'm going to start now, even though I don't have enough. If you're giving, but you know you're just getting by, you say, you know what, I'm going to do more. I want to be involved in what God is doing. However God's working in your life, I want you to be able to respond as we sing this song together. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for these verses out of Mark and the way that it's a story that we can read multiple times, but we come back to and we're reminded of your power. We're reminded of the way that you want to work in and through our lives. God, I pray this morning that the people who are here who maybe came and thought, you know what, I really didn't want to hear a sermon about money, I needed something else. God, that they would see beyond that, that what we're talking about right now is giving ourselves fully to you because of what you've done for us. And so, Father, give us the courage at this time to respond to you, that if we are holding parts of us back, that we would surrender all to you. And God, more than anything, that we would walk in worship and faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.